Welcome to another Pint with Shawnee B, folks, and it doesn't get much better than this. We're outside, I think it's my first outside Pint with Shawnee B. We're in Manly, New South Wales. It's a Friday afternoon, it's blue sky and sunshine, as is the want in Sydney. And I have a very special guest today, one of the legendary ad men of Australia. We actually also have pints of Carlton, we're going to clink them, just for effect. His name is Grant Rutherford. He is famous for doing my favorite ad campaign of uh, the last two decades since I've been in Australia. Probably the second most awarded piece of advertising after Dumb Ways to Die. It's for Carlton Draft. Brilliant piece of thinking which is made from beer. And this guy stewarded that campaign for many years. He's also massively awarded. He's worked at the helm of many of the top agencies in Australia. I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast Grant Rutherford. Thank you, Sean. We planned this last night drinking with a bunch of people from uh, Australian advertising. I had not met you before last no. night and we had a good old chat and I said, hey, you want to be on the podcast? And here we are. <laughs> why not do it outside? Um, you're not working in advertising at the moment. Um, what, what, are you, what are you doing right now with your life? Well, right now I'm just taking a bit of a sabbatical and taking a few months off. I think I've had about four or five months off and um, just kind of working out what is next because, you know, it does feel like, while I love advertising, I feel like it's in the death throes. You know, I yeah. feel like it's you know, being grabbed up by a crocodile and it's been taken under. So, so right now I am just keeping my options open, starting lots of companies and, as they say, just putting sweat equity into... into we have this in common. We have this I have yes, been working we do. for about a year and I'm kind of over the business too and I don't know what happened to it and I feel a little bit sad the way the business is, is going. Um, whereabouts in Australia are you from? Well, I'm actually from Perth, but I'm, um, my base is actually in Melbourne. Right. But um, being the, the publicist in Australia, CCO, it's Chief Creative Officer. Yeah. I mean, my God, what is the, <laughs> the world's dumbest title? I spent my time between Sydney and Melbourne, so for two and a half years I um, I have lived out of a suitcase. So you grew up in Perth, did you? When I say I grew up in Perth, I was six when I left. Ah, okay, okay. So I was only in advertising for two years before I left. <laughs> you Perth. started young, yeah. Yeah, it was a really in a bit of a backwater. It was, um, but it, you know, Perth's a great place. My grandmother turns 100 this year, so wow, about to go back. Does she get a letter from? The Prime Minister or the Queen of England? Oh, well, look, I think, I think the Queen has to go and visit her, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, I think you so. Know? I think they still do that. I'm not well, sure if we're Commonwealth centenarians, centenarians or whatever they're called. Where oh, did you move to when you were six? We moved to Adelaide. Um, I'd rather forget that. Really? Yeah, well, that was, that was six years of my life I couldn't get back, you know, yeah. sort of heading into puberty and just about to go into high school and you get you know yanked out of another state and you we ended up in Victoria, so... Were you, tra- were you moving because of your folks, or were they... Oh, yeah, my dad worked for Kodak for 30 years. Right. He was a 35 to lifer, and, you know, he, and he had all sorts of roles across the country. So, yeah. you know, I, I actually imagined... So that was six when we moved to Adelaide, 12 when we when I moved to Melbourne, and then... And did you go to college in Melbourne? Went to Swinburne University, which was a... Um, it was really lauded at the time. It was one of the best... It, I, studied graphic design. I have a degree in graphic design. Right. Um, at the time, it was very early days, um, or oh, not so much for graphic design, but for advertising courses. So there was no such thing. So you had to take out a folio full of little ads and little ideas, and, you know, design needs ideas. And yeah. Great design needs about ideas. Um, around to the agencies, Campaign Palace, all sorts of places, JWT, but 
I soon got the uh, the tiny type and the kerning and the letter spacing kicked out of me very, very quickly. Yeah. These are ads, Grant. Well, they call me rubber. These are ads, rubber. These are not little pieces of design. These are designed to be seen and to be influential. I don't understand. Form over function. <laughs> Form over function. <laughs> so what was the first quickly. agency? It was a, a small agency called Thompson White and Partners, and they were a, a small independent. Uh, they had just a year before sold themselves to Clemenger, but Tony White, he uh, bought it back because he didn't like it. He didn't ah. like the big machine. So what, what happens when I moved there, he uh, sells to FCB. So it became Thompson White FCB. So that, that, and yeah. he didn't last very long because he, he wasn't the corporate guy. He wasn't that guy that was... He sold his agency twice. He sold his agency twice. And I, I like to think he only sold his soul once. Yeah. Tony, I you know you're not that? listening to this right now, but you know, if you are, you know, he was, he was an amazing mentor. He said, he used to call me Longface, and if anybody could see through this podcast, they'd know why. <laughs> but he said, he said, we work hard and we play equally hard. Yeah. And these guys are going to be your mentors and you're going to learn so much off them. Yeah. What age were you when you joined? I would have been about 19. Okay. Okay. And what was the next move from there? I was still in a company called Grey. Yeah. And that was great. It was a couple of years. Then I got pinched by James McGrath, the famous James McGrath, and went to YNR. In Sydney? In Melbourne. Melbourne, right. I went to YNR and, you know, before I even landed on the, on the door on the doorstep they'd merged with Mattingly a big retail agency so maybe you're I the missing know. link in all these there's something going on because because I thought oh, I just want to join a great place and all of a sudden the culture changes yeah yeah you know everything changes and pennies the reason are being start, pinched oh pennies are being pinched there's two of everybody who's yeah. going to lose their job yeah it's, it's, it's quite daunting for a young yeah you know it's only going to last five minutes but you know and then this big ad, so anyone who's listening to the podcast should uh, YouTube uh, Carlton Draft's big ad and have a look at it. It's certainly one of my favorite ads of all time. Tell me about that campaign, because it, it, it came out of a, a world where beer advertising was just warm and unfizzy in, aver- in, in, in Australia. You mean like English beer? Yes, saying, it was yeah. like a Australian, Australian advertising was like English beer back then. And then I suppose a couple of brands took a risk. But Carlton was number three in the market, was it? When? It probably was number three. VB was number one. At the time, one in every two beers was a, was a uh, VB. You know, Tui's was hot on the tail there. Four X's in there. Carlton was in there. Crown Lager was in there. Yeah. You know, the Golden Bogan beer was in yeah. there. That was great. Yeah. Love that. Worked on that too. Yeah. Uh, beer, like lots of things like cars, they're, 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 there's all these conventions and one brand that's big does it and then all the other brands sort of copy it and that, that's a sort of a, a rule or an unfortunate rule in much of advertising so beer advertising was always sing a jingle it's a reward for a harder and thirst there's people sculling it back and looking at beautiful women and and then uh, the other thing they do is they talk about how the beer is made for ingredients natural water cool and naturally brewed and then you guys came up with this brilliant thought, which is made from beer. Made from beer, um, I mean, you know, you being a planner, you yeah. would absolutely love it. The, the challenge was that Carlton Draft wasn't necessarily broken. It was already 95% on tap in Victoria. Yeah. The big move was, you know, into New South Wales. They wanted to get into the draft beer category there. Yeah. So we came up with this blinding flash of what is not the obvious anymore, but uh, made from beer, it's a good honest beer. And, 
Look, you can look you can look back in history. It's some of the greatest beer advertising in the world, like John Smith's No Nonsense. And, yeah. You know, it really was calling bullshit for bullshit. So why can't why can't we do that? What's happened? Yes, everybody's following each other, and but they're following each other to mediocrity. Yeah. So it didn't take very much. It just took a you know James and I to go to George Pat's, go straight into CV after a, you know, almost a thirty year relationship they had with CV, and just to say, well, how about we do this? And it was great because they, they said, this is what we've been waiting for. We haven't been getting this out of our agency yeah. for years. And I thought the way clients say that, great. like as if it's nothing to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, 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 you know, when I look over the years and how many ads that you know, Keo and I did, and, and, you know, somebody did ask me the other day what my proudest achievement was, and it was actually made from beer. It lasted 10 years yeah, at yeah, least. Yeah. And now they've gone to brewery fresh, and I don't know why. I know. They're actually letting their own side down by doing that, because they're, uh, uh, they're trying to be serious about it. Tell me a little bit about uh, Australia. And, you know, you, you're, you're one of the only people I know who's kind of experienced, even though you were little in Perth, but you've experienced, and because you were in charge of... The, the, the continent for a number of, of, of agencies. Tell me about, for listeners who don't know Australia, what your view is of growing up in Australia and what it is and means today. What it means to be Australian is, is to be very proud of our uh, provenance, you know, where we've come from. I think, you know, growing up in Australia was a land that was very free and easy and, you know, not 80% of the population, 90% of the population live on the coast. Yeah. That's why everybody loves to come here. Yeah. But despite that, you know, we have world-class people in every industry. Yeah. Now more than ever, it's a great place to be because we are world-class. But the only thing that I've noticed, and, you know, friends who come over here, from, especially from Britain, their first impression of Australia is how regulated it is, how you can't do something. Yeah. Don't walk on the grass. Don't do yeah. this. Don't do that. Alcohol. Don't. Alcohol industry. Don't show one person because they'll, they're obviously alone. Well, you're all they're... descended from convicts. Oh. That's why. Well, <laughs> well, I tell you, I, 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 you know, Aunt Irish Pierre. convicts. <laughs> well, I've got some sort of Scottish her- her- heritage than me. I was going to say. Yeah, Grant Rutherford. Grant, Grant Andrew Rutherford. He could get more Scottish. Yeah. And Anthony, Aunt Keo. I mean, he was. That's pretty much Irish. And yeah. He'd actually worked out that there was a Rutherford and a Keogh on the first fleet. Probably, we can't work probably out risking out. <laughs> I just think it would, make great, it would make great comedy. You know, back <laughs> yeah. then we could do made from rum or made yeah. from barrels of molasses or something. Made from lime. But yeah. um, no, it, it, it's a wonderful place to work. But you do find the young guys are in very much a hurry, and they they will just go overseas at the drop of a hat. Yeah, they don't think it's here. They don't, they don't think the work's here. They don't think the agency's here. And um, all the clients are here. All those things are here. Yeah. It's just very, very conservative. Yeah. And, you know, when you, when, you teach a, when you teach a client over all these years how to behave and about marketing in general, we, you know, it's our own fault. We've actually taught them too well. Yeah. So they've reclaimed their pants, the advertising pants, and they think they can do it themselves. Yes, they can, but can they do it like us? Probably not. There's I never going to be a great a global issue. Or... I think that's happening as more and more marketing people thought they knew what they were doing. I, when I first came here, I never expected to live in Australia. Not to mind because I'm also an Australian citizen. And oh, uh, congratulations! That's, yeah, that's just, just what you needed. Just, that. just what you needed. Another Irishman. <laughs> but when I when I arrived down to Australia, I literally came in on a early flight from Singapore for a holiday around July, January time, and. 
I just said, this is the city I've been looking for all over the world. And I fucking loved it when I got here. And what I like most about it is, I was even saying this latest trip that I've come on, whenever I go to New York or to London or to Dublin, my hometown, and I'm driving in from the airport, I get this clenched sensation. <laughs> this kind of stomach clenching kind of anxiety and here you know I come in and it's sunny and you're getting a ferry over to Manly and it's beautiful and the opera house is there and the bridge and it's like Sydney hikes up its skirt for you and says hey Shawnee we missed you and <laughs> I'm, I, I just feel really relaxed here and even when I was working here there was never that there, there, there was, there's a good attitude, you know. There, or there was. I'm not sure what it's like now, but it was, it was friendly, and there wasn't backstabbing, and you went out drinking with your colleagues, and it was fun. And, and maybe I'm looking at it through, uh, you know, rose-tinted specs. But yeah, as soon as I got here, I went. I really want to, to be able to come and go here, and now I can. And I'm very proud to be Australian as well. One of the things I want to talk to you about, uh, primarily, uh, over and above the advertising bit, is this Snow Dome Foundation that you established. Um, tell me a little bit about, about that whole story. Well, it, it's, a, it's a hard story, but it's, a, it's one that gets easier and easier to tell. It's uh, five years ago, I lost my daughter to leukemia, Chloe, and she was age nine. She was in, hospital for, in and out of hospital for three years. She died of complications uh, uh, from leukemia. She got pneumonia, and she, and she passed away. But a very close family friend of mine, Professor Miles Prince, who's you know arguably the best hematologist in the country. So five years ago, he said, "Look, Rabella, we've got to make sense of this somehow. I know you're grieving, but you know how, how do you, how do we um, how do we get together and how do we put our energies into doing something good?" And uh, it was pretty much a no-brainer. He, he even suggested the name Snowdon. Why Snowdones? Was her love of Snowdones, and when she was in hospital and unfortunately going in for an operation, there was a little nurses' quarter in the centre of the um, the of the theatre, a glass one, and its walls were adorned with Snowdones from all around the world. She, like you, would call them snow globes. Right. She, she's going to hate Snowdone Foundation. <laughs> but um, and she's and as she was going under, she said, "Oh, I really want to get one of those snow globes from the gift shop." Well, of course, she got what she wished. Um, it wasn't a shop necessarily, but the nurses started bringing her, you know, all these wow. snowdomes. And then people would go overseas and people would be all over the place and if there was a snowdome to be had, they would bring it back for her. So her, her collection grew very, very quickly yeah. to about 60. Um, even though she, after she passed away, it's now at about 200. Wow. So there was something about snow, snow domes and that magical quality and you know shaking it up and yeah. you know I was thinking about shaking the world of blood cancers once and for all and when I say blood cancers I mean leukemia which she had lymphoma and myeloma yeah. you know how do we how do we shake that world and Professor Mons Prince was part of a, a group of epigeneticists who had found a different way of attacking uh, attacking these cancers so lo and behold you know you've got a marketing guy you've got a you've got a professor and you've got a storyteller you've got Chloe's story which really does get people in and then the proof is in exactly what we're doing so so all of a sudden I had a sort of um, you know paraphernalia and you know stories and videos and going around to very well meaning high wealth individuals corporations and government saying this is vastly underfunded um, and uh, 
this is what we're doing and your money will make a real difference. The problem is, um, you know, we're, we're not a massively giving society. I think everybody thinks Australia is this massive yeah. giving society. The Americans give more than we do. They give about 15% of their income away. Right. They're very targeted, three months' worth of um, funds. We give about 1%. Wow. And the government, while they've come on board and, and done a few co-funding things, they haven't necessarily got behind, the, you know, got on the blood cancer bandwagon. There are other cancers out there, the poster children of blood cancers are prostate cancer, lung cancer, and breast, and breast cancer. And they're just far more emotive. You, you already know what breast cancer is about. It's yeah. like, you know, the origins of life. It's, just, it's, it's, it's the stuff of life. You can imagine. You can yeah. imagine your mother, your sister, everybody. So it's, it's far more emotive. But, um, you know, blood cancers are the third highest killer of um, Australians through cancer every year. Yeah. 11,500 people are diagnosed every year. Chloe was one of those. And 70% of kids actually survive right now, you know, leukemia, which unfortunately she wasn't one. I mean, you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but what, no, was, it, no, what was it like when she got diagnosed as a... Fu- I mean, I just can't imagine. Well, it's like, um, it's, you know, we had another child, Lily, and he's three years older, but it's like the world... It's like the world just drops at your feet and you're just suspended in midair and you're just going, how can this happen? It just doesn't make any sense. And, and, you, and you're looking for reasons why. You're looking at... Oh, was I living in the wrong suburb? Was I living under a you know an electric tower? Or was yeah. I too close to a? How come? How come Chloe got sick? Or was getting sick? But I think the statistics spoke for themselves that it wasn't the end of the world, even though it was completely devastating. Not the end of the world because of that you know that high you know success rate in curing, yeah. uh, especially kids with with um, leukemia. Um, so all the hope in the world. But unfortunately, yes, it got her in the end. She went into remission, which is another, which is a double blow because she was in remission for a few months and then it found another way of getting her. And it's just like, you know, it's, it, it's awful. Um, do you quite, like, do you, are you, I mean, are you a religious person? Do you, do, do, you, do you throw, does that cause you to just go, this is all, you know? No, no, I, I'm not a particularly religious person. I think I went to Sunday school. <laughs> But I, you know, forced to go. Forced to go. Forced to go. Um, I'm. Uh, I'd like to consider myself a practicing atheist, but uh, yeah. But look, either, you know, but there are a lot of religious people out there, and you know, we we did try a lot of people, you know, lots of different therapies, who you know, to get it better, you know, lots of different suicides, etc., etc. But one of the nice things, you know, you know, while she was in hospital, all these uh, snow domes coming from overseas. You know, one was sat in the Church of Notre Dame with her best friend at the time, and they said a prayer and they brought brought, brought back this beautiful snow dome. Yeah. Somebody was in China, in Shanghai, and they they had a poor snow dome yeah. there, and they uh, had it placed by a Chinese monk. And you kind of you do really feel you do feel slightly more spiritual, and you think yeah. these people are going out of their way yeah. to do this, and there is real hope in the world. And I think you know, religion is based around hope, but our our position, the position of Snowden, is hope made real. Because it's not black hole research money, it's it's actually going straight into patients, into new cutting-edge therapies. Um, Do you think we'll ever to... cure cancer? Yes, absolutely. If you talk to, if you had Miles Prince here, one of the great, you know, my partner, one of the great orators, the only difference between curing them and not curing them is money. So, with what we're doing right now, we've raised... Incredible, like ten point three million dollars. Wow! 
we've got some match funding through that, so the real number is $20 million. That gets a lot of people on clinical trials, um, and you know, a lot, a lot of people on clinical trials. But the more research and real-time research you put into those patients, the more outcomes you have, and you go, okay, this worked for Josephine, maybe we'll try this with Gary. Yeah. And because because we just learn more and more every day, and that's just about putting money in the right places. But Grant, you have, I, I hear you about the money, but we, isn't, isn't it true that cancer has been criminal number one for the last 40 years and it still takes one in three of us. Well, okay, so blood cancers are very different to most cancers. They're not lifestyle born. They're also not, they don't discriminate. They're not sexist, yeah. they're not ages. Yeah. So blood cancers are random acts of unkindness in a lot of ways. No amount of screening, no amount of anything is going to detect if you're going to get a blood cancer. Maybe now that they've mapped the genome, maybe we can find that out a bit more. Um, but breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, they're, you know, predominantly, not all of them, but, you know, predominantly uh, lifestyle-born cancers. So it's what are we doing to ourselves? And, you know, what, how's our food being processed? What, what are we doing? What's, you know, pollution, you know, mobile phones, what is actually going on in the world that's sort of changed so much that all of a sudden these cancers are you know, hitting more and more people every year yeah. Yeah. But like, I guess what I'm saying is if, we, if they crack breast cancer is it like breaking a wall down, does that mean that the same techniques or twists of them will then cure prostate and blood and Absolutely, you know, you know Miles Prince told me that you know, one of the, um, and I'm going to get this wrong, Miles, so please don't, don't hurt me. One of the findings with, uh, with our research is that, you know, one of the, one of the drugs that is being supported, there was a marker there somewhere that looked like curing AIDS. And I'm not just talking about, you know, making HIV a manageable disease, yeah. which they've done, but actually curing people. Right. So, and this is the wonderful thing about our organisation, is that while we're predominantly, well, we're, while we are blood cancers, in five years' time, we might be something else. Yeah. Because the side effects of some of these drugs and, and good side effects, that they, they, they look like they're going to cure other things. Yeah. How cathartic was, you know, in, in coming to terms with grief, I can't even imagine, I don't even have children myself, but I can't imagine if I lost a niece or, you know, a, a friend of mine even lost a, a child. I can't imagine what it was like. How did you come to terms with it and how important was getting your energy put into this foundation as a sort of memoriam to her? Oh, extremely important because life doesn't stop. And yeah. as as my daughter, my daughter Lily, said to me one day, she said, she said that's okay, or everybody's grieving for Chloe, but we have to concentrate on the living. I'm going, oh my, you like the wisest person yeah. in the world. Yeah. And she didn't necessarily mean herself. Yeah. <laughs> she she just meant life. Life goes on, and we have to not forget, but we have to just move on and, yeah. and make sense of it. But starting the foundation for me was was very cathartic. But so so through all that, it actually keeps you busy. Yeah. Um, we do a lot with patients who have been through the journey. And yeah. Do a lot of a lot of things. You get to meet a lot of people, and how grateful they are that you're helping. Yeah. But also knowing that you can help save one life. You know, Chloe's passing and say help save one life. That's so worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. But Snowdome isn't a, a big public facing charity at the moment because I don't want to spend all that time and money trying yeah, to explain yeah. blood cancers A and B, yeah. how they how, how they 
how they affect us because that's a massive campaign of awareness in the first place. That we'd rather be putting the money straight into you know cutting edge therapies and fuels. So, you, so you, you talk about this kind of uh, optimism and pessimism, but the it will only be optimistic and successful and putting a smile on your long face if the youth of today do something better than they're doing or have been doing or we have been doing so what do you what would you say you know from this you know just approaching 50 or whatever you are to your say your younger self or to a to a kid today you know that's that's about to go into advertising or something in general in advertising well, well what, just like, what lessons go? have you learned or what well, would you, you know <laughs> how would you do it differently I would just probably try to get out there a little bit more and just really you know maybe either explore the world you know go you know don't just sit at home here in your, in your living room you know wondering what's what the big wide world is out there yeah just just get out there and do it I think I think one thing that I would say to my younger self today you should have taken a few more chances yeah. you should have taken a few more chances you should have struck while the iron's hot on a, few, on, a, on a few of those opportunities that just kind of went by it's a recurring theme on these podcasts because I think what we realise is that actually the things that we were afraid of or that we were scared of or that we were told not to do because you need money or whatever that looking back you, you, you probably could have done them and, mm. and, and, and brought yourself elsewhere. I, I also um, to my younger self I'd actually ask more people to help it's only you know blinding flash of the obvious that when you start a foundation you do have to ask people for things yes and for their time or their custom whatever it is when you're young you don't really go out there and do that you don't go or even for advice you don't just go up to John Higgins and say oh can you give me some advice here these people are incredible they will give you they, they will give you all the time in the world because yeah. they like to give their wisdom pass their wisdom to you so you'll pass it on to somebody else yeah but with the Snowdome Foundation I found that you know, you don't get what you don't ask for. And one of the yeah. first people I got on board was Richard Branson. He'd be great, you know, oh, corporate Australia would love him. So I found a friend who knew him, a friend of a friend, whatever, and I asked, and within two days he said yes. Yeah. <laughs> you go, you go, whoa, okay. <laughs> so what else should I be asking for? Yeah. But yeah, just go out there and ask, ask people for stuff. Um, but mate, this has been great. Um, before we go, I just wanted to check: is uh, how does somebody donate to uh, the Snow Dome Foundation? Yes. Anybody can donate. Uh, they can go to snowdome.org.au. Yeah. And go on the website. You know, down the bottom, there's a there's a there's a page of giving. Yeah. People can see how they can get involved. Um, you know, all money is good money. Uh, you can actually learn a little bit too about how the human body works. I think it's a wonderful thing about that website is it just shows you. I think that uh, this podcast has been great because somebody has suffered a terrible loss and has created a wonderful memorial to a young girl who passed away. Uh, Grant Wilford, thank you for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed the chat. It's a bit noisy here. I'm not sure how it's going to come out. Apologies. <laughs> if you're finding it hard, listeners, to, to pick it all up. But uh, we've been patient with Manly. And, uh, Grant, I wish you all the best. I, I, I'm dying to see where you turn your hand next. I'll put the uh, link to your um, foundation on the blurb for the podcast. And I urge any, any listeners to visit the site. And, you know, as Grant said, any money is good money. So whatever you can afford, contribute. Grant Rutherford, thank you for being on the Pirate Show. Thank you, Sean.